Hi everyone, it's me, Ben, and uh, I just wanted to tell you a couple of things before we begin this, the penultimate podcast of 2012. Um, next week we'll have part one of our year uh, in review. Uh, we'll have some of our old friends back, and then we'll put part two out um, at the beginning of next year. It should be pretty cool. Um, but in the meantime, a couple of things that you as aspiring writers and television writers should know about. One is the Michelangelo screenwriting program uh, in which you get to go to Italy for two weeks or maybe even three weeks uh, and take uh, classes and have lectures and do workshops with me and my writing partner, Ben Acker. Um, It's in July, but go sign up now because it's amazing. Uh, the full write-up is on their website, which is michelangelo-screenwriting.com slash program. Uh, and it's really cool. You go stay in this little uh, village in Italy, and you study screenwriting, and you write. And, uh, you know, we talk about writing for two full weeks. Uh, and then we're doing a third sort of intensive week. Uh, you know, if you can't get a screenplay done or a television script done or whatever you're working on done in beautiful Tuscany, then I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, So please go check that out. It's really cool. Ben and I are really excited to be a part of it. Uh, We're thrilled that they asked us, uh, and it it should be awesome. We really relish the opportunity to dig in and workshop some stuff um, that you're working on, and, you know, we we get asked for feedback quite a bit, and this is a great way to do it and an amazing place to do it. The other thing you should know about, uh, I've talked before about the ATX Television Festival, which is the Austin TV Festival. The next one will be held in June uh, 2013. They had their first one this year. It's the most fun I had all year. It's an amazing thing, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it on the year in review next week because we'll have a couple of people with us. Um, But they are currently running a pitch competition. Uh, You can... Pitch your ideas for television shows, and they will be judged by professionals in the industry, including folks who have appeared in this panel, like Bill Lawrence and Liz Tigelar, um, Kyle Killen, who else? David Hudgens. Uh, it's, it's really cool. Um, it's worth checking out. Go to atxfestival.com slash pitch uh, and look for information on that um, it, you know, I, I think it's free or cheap to enter, 25 bucks or something to enter, uh, and it's really worth it. it. You know, these guys give great feedback, um, and I think it's a terrific opportunity. You know, best case scenario is people like what you have to say, and, and <laughs> you find out you're actually good at this. So that's atxfestival.com slash pitch, and we'll be talking about more about that um, in future episodes. Uh, and now here is a little chat that I had with Man of Action Studios, really great guys who do some really interesting work in all kinds of media. Uh, I'm sure you know them. They're most famous for creating Ben 10. So enjoy. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, We have Man of Action Studios, or 75% of you, right? The good part. The good part, part clearly. The three-fourths not in a hurricane. That's right. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Is he well? Is everything okay? 
Joe's good. Joe Kelly lives on the East Coast, and his house is on a slight rise right by the ocean on Long Island. So Holy his God. neighbors have a lot of calamity, and he's fairly dry. But he, he spent no yesterday helping good. pull a boat out of a friend's house. Get um, out of here. That's awful. Yeah. Well, we'll cut this out. Um, <laughs> it's all right. It's real. Let's stay real. We should keep it real. Uh, please, let's introduce yourselves. Uh, we'll start here with uh, Steve and go down. Uh, I'm Steve Siegel, sometimes known as Stephen T. Siegel. Uh, Duncan Rulo. Joe Casey. Thanks again for doing this. Um, let's get right into it. I want to hear, before we kind of delve into your past and the things leading up to it, uh, about how Man of Action came to be formed and why it came to be formed. Uh, we ask that question daily now that we're on year 12 of this gig <laughs> together. No yeah, I know. It's crazy. Uh, no, we worked together on the, on the X-Men comics mm-hmm. all at the same time, uh, writing, drawing. Uh, lots of different combinations and we liked each other and we had a hard time working on those books because Marvel was bankrupt at the time and it was it was a difficult period in the X-Men history yeah when this was like mid 90s late 90s uh, late 90s, late 90s. Okay. 96 uh, to 98 somewhere, somewhere in that neighborhood and then uh, slowly each of the Man of Action guys before Man of Action migrated to the Superman franchise mm-hmm. uh, and that similarly there was a movie that was on the rocks and so, you know, I came in at just the wrong moment of that also. It was not very fun. But again, here were these guys, and we had a great time making stuff up together. So uh, we just collectively decided we should make a company to make stuff up and not work on other people's stuff so much. It's interesting that, like, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of Image, who did this, right, a few years right. prior and did it in such a splashy and sort of over-the-top way yeah. <laughs> where they said, we're going to make our own stuff, screw you guys. Uh, you guys have been relatively, you know, you were pretty cool about it. Uh, it wasn't a big middle finger to the industry. You guys continue to work in the industry, if I'm not wrong. I mean, for the big two right. companies. Uh, well, I think, to be fair, they, um, they most definitely started a trend that a lot mm-hmm. of other people had followed. And so sometimes you do have to be big and splashy mm-hmm. uh, to, to start something like that. Sure. Uh, and also, I don't think ultimately their goals were the same as ours. Uh, we have uh, uh, we do work in comics as well, but uh, also we were thinking in terms of media and uh, uh, and cross media and all of mm-hmm. those kind of things. The essential part I think uh, that we've discovered that's really quite valuable is individually bigger companies, studios, um, video game companies deal with you very differently as an individual than they do with a company. Sure. And you get into a negotiation stance that's very different, and it's been extremely useful for us. Interesting. What, what has been, and, and maybe any of you can answer this, but what has been your uh, experience in working individually with these bigger companies, these video game companies or television companies? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, before Man of Action, specifically. <laughs> I loved it then, and I love it now. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the confusing yeah. thing for people is people don't know how we work or what we do, mm-hmm. uh, which we kind of <laughs> like. We're, we're kind of a mystery entity. Uh, it's nice of you to say, cool, we've just kept a low profile because we have plenty to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need to beat the drum that loud because we don't have any more manpower to do more sure. than we're doing. So uh, I think for us it's been that we've tried to keep kind of our individual comic lives alive, some more successful than others, like Mr. Joe Casey, who can do 25 books a, a week, it seems like. <laughs> but uh, So we keep that, and we keep doing that stuff. Uh, and then as Man of Action, we've had more kind of media jobs, like creating cartoons. Our first job was writing four short films. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, we were hired what by... 
What was that? What was it? Uh, I don't even remember most of the names. It was who was it that hired uh, us? Well, it was a guy named Clark Westerman who used to work for CIA. Ark Westerman, who used to work for a talent agency, a comic book talent agency, but uh, then he had gotten funding uh, and gotten some titles. They were kind of smaller uh, published titles, and they were trying to drum up some money. Yeah, uh, so we wrote these so four short screenplays. And we, we did it kind of separately, but looked at each other's all. stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess eventually they filmed them. I don't even know about that. <laughs> they did. <laughs> did we get paid for those? Really? We, yeah, we got paid. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Still good. outstanding. Yeah. Uh, and then the next job we did was we wrote uh, X-Men Legends for Activision, mm-hmm. which is a video game job. And I think they had offered it to Casey alone. Was that right? Yeah, I was working. I was writing Uncanny X-Men, the, one of the flagship books at Marvel. And so they, they asked me, and I said, hey, that's too much work for me. But we were just starting this company and i thought well if i i pull everybody in it's less work for me and we get our name out there and actually legitimize what we're trying to do um and it kind of worked yeah (laughs) no i think um uh that was an advantage that we were also looking at is that each one of us had kind of uh backgrounds that were a little more diverse than uh simply the comic book backgrounds Mm -hmm. uh that we had, and that uh, each one of us had uh, connections that we could help each other make uh, and uh, also work en masse as a company hmm. uh, to help develop them a little further. So Let's those, talk, yeah. Sorry, those two jobs went well, and we were starting to develop kind of properties collectively where we're like, well, let's just spend a, a day a month making stuff up together because mm-hmm. that's what we kind of formed the group to do. Sure. And at that time, uh, Matt Senreich uh, from Robot Chicken fame came to us and said, oh, Cartoon Network wants a superhero show. You guys should pitch him some stuff. So that was our third kind of job as Man of Action was creating Ben 10. We were kind of, I mean, the one thing that was significant about the video game and then the Cartoon Network thing is that we, the one, we have horrible timing a lot, except the one thing that we timed well was that we became a company and became available to work just as, these companies like Activision and Cartoon Network and the studios were finally looking to comic book creators to actually do the work as opposed to just either if it's a a creator-owned IP, just buying it and just doing their own thing with it, or if it's a Marvel or DC property, optioning the property or having the property or getting like real legitimate screenwriters or, you know, to write it and adapt it. Now they were starting to actually look at comic book creators as viable people to do that work Mm -hmm. so we kind of slipped in right as that was starting to happen yeah a little ahead of the curve that's great um i want to talk about those backgrounds that each of you had going into this and kind of what each of you brought to the table as well um and and any of you who wants to jump in first but just tell me like a little bit about where you came from what was your uh what was the stuff you were putting in your eyes and ears as uh an impressionable well steve's the oldest so he should go oh, first <laughs> harsh duncan is the actually oldest, unfortunately but, uh, oh that's no not true uh, but i'm the youngest at heart and joe casey sure. looks the oldest because he lives <laughs> the hardest <laughs> no you know what's cool about us and i think the reason we've managed to make it 12 years is because none of us have the same interests and none of us do the exact same things and certainly mm-hmm. we don't do it the same way so like joe kelly who's the young pup uh even as old as he is you know kind of graduated right out of NYU and was put on the X-Men, boom, just like that. Did a great comedic run on Deadpool, you know, and has a has this just really hideous dark side. Like, he's always murdering somebody in his comics, and there's a, you know, a dead baby found in a wheelbarrow, and, you know, he brings that to everything we do, even the kids' stuff, which is a little unnerving. Uh, I kind of... He's going to love to hear this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he knows it's true. Uh, he's not here. I can say whatever. 
He has uh, a wooden <laughs> leg. and uh, That's right. Uh, I kind of... And a wooden heart. Yeah, I started in independent comics, uh, very small press stuff, and then uh, segued over to more of the Vertigo imprint at DC. So most of my creative output was through them. And then I tried Steve's to very do... modest. He was nominated for an Eisner for the first book that he did. <laughs> so there you go. Well, I, I was book? called Kafka. Mm-hmm. I was nominated for Best Miniseries, and I lost to a little thing called Watchmen. So <laughs> Rip off. Good timing. Terrible. I voted for Watchmen, by the way, <laughs> uh, that year. But I did get to meet Jack Kirby. That was pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, but I remember, and uh, Sandman Mystery Theater was yeah, yours, yeah. right? Yeah, I did that, that for a, five years. That was a seminal book for in my like heaviest comic book reading Sweet. years. I Me loved, too. Loved, loved doing so that much. book. Loved Guy Davis. That man can draw anything. Matt Wagner was great to work with, even though I told him no when he called me and said, let's work on this together because he was going to leave. <laughs> I was like, you and I are friends, but this is not going to work. We don't, we're not going to mesh. And I went to his house up in Portland to try to figure out whether we could do it or not. And he, I literally I walked in the door. He's like, I got to go to the store. And he handed me his infant child and just left. And there was some kind of, I don't know, lone wolf and cub weirdness going on. I, like having to take care of his child bonded us immediately. And then he came back and made dinner and we just started working. So. And that child was the Sandman mystery. <laughs> exactly. It was an actual child. Um, uh, was that the kind of genre stuff that you were attracted to, though? Uh, or, or is there... A particular uh, yeah. My career is defined to. by no one understanding what kind of work I do, which is I do on purpose. <laughs> like I'll do a, a crime book, and then a kids book, and then a metafiction, and then a. So years later, I realized that this brilliant I'm going to do a lot of stuff has turned into no one has any idea what kind of stuff I do. So, I, but it's know. rare you can build a career on that. And I'm know, not sure I have, but yeah, thanks. <laughs> you're all right. It's good. It's very rare. No, I, the, the thing that the four of us have in common, I think, is that we love genre splicing so I you know I love Sandman Mystery Theater but it's a crime comic where really the romance is the main thing <laughs> if you think about it the mysteries yeah. are kind of stupid and you know them right away <laughs> so it's always that the romance driving it and I that definitely shows up in all my stuff is is playing in one sandbox but secretly it's it's about a different sandbox interesting uh, and now I just do all my stuff through Image and I'm just doing a lot of one-off graphic novel kind of things sure. and I've got a play that tours the country that I work with so that's amazing like what that. is that? Uh, is this a friend, family-friendly podcast or no? Well, you can curse as much as you fucking want. <laughs> because, uh, it's called Nigger Wetback Chink. So. <laughs> it's a comedy, luckily, and I'm not in it, obviously. Uh, How are you involved with it? I co-wrote and directed. He's the white guy. Oh. That's right. Yeah, there's always, there's always one. So. <laughs> the non-titular white guy. <laughs> yes, right. but that's been touring for a bunch of years. But, you know, it's that's like fantastic. it gives me different input. Joe's been in a lot of bands. Duncan plays music and draws and is a renaissance man of all kinds. So we just... We have a lot of input coming into the group, which is really mm-hmm. useful. Don't forget Duncan's acting career. That's a That's good Duncan right. was an actor first. And That's tell right. us about it, Duncan. Oh, well, next time you sit down and you're watching, uh, uh, well, let's see, what channel? Untouchables? They yeah, well, I, I was trying to set, find the oh, channel the that, it's, that, that it's constantly playing on. <laughs> uh, my first uh, screen uh, shot was actually being shot on screen uh, <laughs> on, in the Untouchables. Yeah. Get out of uh, here. Yeah. I came the out. Famous scene where the baby carriage is going down. He's one no of the sailors. Uh, I get my sure. back blown out. Uh, <laughs> now you just throw it. Welcome out. Hollywood. So after that immediate success in Chicago, <laughs> I moved out here to uh, tumbleweeds for many years. I actually worked in film for a great deal of time mm-hmm. out here, mostly production. Uh, I did a great deal of storyboard oh, uh, okay. work, um, and I met uh, Neil Adams through that he has continuity studios and uh, he had seen some of my storyboards and asked me if i was interested in doing any type of comic work and did i have a portfolio 
uh, I knew who he was when I was a kid, but uh, mm. the idea that I was actually meeting, you know, a, a legend and somebody that I had admired a great yeah. deal when I was younger, you know, it got me thinking back about comic books. And I, uh, it was either of being a waiter or something like that or trying to make it as a comic book artist because <laughs> I could uh, I could draw when I want to and then go on auditions uh, you know <laughs> sure. that was make my own for your own real o- career yes for my real <laughs> career uh, and oddly enough I uh, I actually started writing screenplays uh, and had a little bit of success I had a couple of things optioned really before my comic book career hmm. had uh, ignited into the wildfire <laughs> that all of you now <laughs> I uh, have experienced. Uh, but inside of the comic books, uh, it was funny. Uh, Steve and I had met uh, around the same time, maybe a little earlier than uh, Joe uh, Kelly. Yeah. Uh, we had a mutual friend, James Robinson, who... Uh, never introduced us. Never introduced us. And we met each other <laughs> oh, at, uh, no. at some kind of function. I was like, oh, you, you know James? Yeah. Oh, you work at comics? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we got to be friends. Um, and at one point, uh, this was... Uh, comic books can be a very... Uh, a close-knit uh, community, a very phone community. Uh, uh, I was uh, uh, very early on when Joe Kelly, I worked on this thing called Juggernaut with him. I was uh, mm-hmm. drawing the book. Uh, he had just started up Deadpool and had asked me if I would like to work with him on it. But at the same time, Steve and I were discussing working on uh, Alpha Flight. And uh, so I made the move Good to Alpha choice. Flight. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Although but now, see now that the legacy of that is that Disney just announced their first. That was my that, that was my segue. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, go for it. Oh, what? Disney! Disney announced they're going to do their first Marvel character movie through Disney. Oh, really? And they mm-hmm. went through all the whole vast Marvel library and picked Big Hero Six, which was this kind of team sure. we made up for Alpha Flight. Yeah, I remember so, that. So that was something. No, it was Good great. Thing you did it absolutely because <laughs> we're not going to have our names on any Deadpool movie that comes out. <laughs> right. uh, then uh, and then uh, met uh, Joe Casey uh, also actually through James Robinson as well. He seems to be a conduit. he was the nexus of all realities. Right. You were working at a uh, you were working at a bookstore in Burbank. Joe Casey worked like a block from where I lived. Yeah, so I guess I knew you before I knew you. Yeah, but I jumped into comics soon after because mm-hmm. I had to peer pressure. <laughs> you, you everybody knew all I, of these comics. Right? Everybody I knew was writing comics. I figured I guess I should too. Uh, and what were what were you doing at the time? What were you looking to do? Um, I wanted to write comics, mm-hmm. um, and actually meeting everybody that I met when I moved to LA really pulled the curtain back and just like, <laughs> you realized there was nothing <laughs> <right>. behind it. <laughs> Oddly enough, being friends with Steve didn't discourage me from pursuing that career because he was kind of on a roll. So I thought, man, anybody can do this. Um, but it. But being friends with people who did it for a living kind of made me see how you could do it, and mm-hmm. that it wasn't such a mystical, magical thing to break into. Sure. What was the, um, and, and I would ask this of all of you, what was the language of comics that you first learned? What was the scripting that you first learned? Uh, was it something you developed yourself? Was it something you know, that editors helped you with? <laughs> no editors helped. No? <laughs> At all. Uh, I can speak for uh, my my experience is slightly different than theirs mm-hmm. in comics, and that was working with writers as an illustrator. Yeah. So I got to look at and study uh, their scripts in a in a I think in a slightly different light, and that's how to uh, practically make those words come uh, take some kind of form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think I learned from some of the best, and two of them are sitting right next to me. So there you Aww, go. Oh, you big galoot! There you go. <laughs> but I think anybody who gets into comics. I don't. I can't imagine 
them not having done them like as a kid making your own mm-hmm. comics where you just on typing paper even when you can't draw you try to draw them and stuff and so you you learn the language of it early on mm-hmm. and then you the trick is then how to do it professionally how to get paid to do it i think for the most part everybody once you get to that point where you figure out how to break in and how to get paid and you know you already know how to do it mm-hmm. you just have to prove to people who could hire you to do it that you can do it yeah that's a good point what was the first stuff that you did that you know got that you actually did get paid for i did uh i did some small press stuff when i was a teenager Mm -hmm. like just black and white stapled stuff that got networked around and then um i did some black and white stuff that i was i thought i was gonna go steve's route which was he worked in independent comics for a couple mm-hmm. years and then sort of graduated to the big two. So I was working on my own things. And and then no, knowing James Robinson, <laughs> as we all do, he got me in at Marvel right away. Wow. So before even my black and white, stu- black and white stuff could come out, I was already working regularly at Marvel. So That's wild. So yeah. what was the first Marvel stuff? Do you remember? I, did a, I took over for him on a book called Cable, which is one of the mm-hmm. X-Men satellite books. Sure. And... Uh, I was off to the races, and what a way to start in that was X that, office. Was that all? Ladrone was great. Yeah, I was with Ladrone. It was a great way to start. That it was, though. No, Ladrone was Man. the best part of it. you for making that leap. <laughs> I'm like, I still can't get Ladrone on a book, and you started with him. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, talk to me for a second about working with artists. Um, I'm, They're I'm awful. I'm writing a comic book They're for arrogant. the first time. Oh, and, nice. and, and, oh, God. Marvel, and they lie. And it's, it's for Marvel. For Marvel. And it's <laughs> bizarre getting these sketches from this artist off in Spain. First of all, who's your editor? Uh, Jordan White. Okay. Uh, we're writing a Wolverine thing, and it's fun, and it's a, you know, a great learning process, but you know, there's not a lot of interaction between uh, my writing partner and me and the artist. Uh, so it's really just getting sketches back. I you, do you, you not have the email of your artist? Do you not know his email address? We or? do, is there but email also, him. it's our first thing. So what? Email you know, him. We don't yeah. have a lot of No, you've got to be aggressive notes. in actually really? establishing that communication just, with Yeah, just, That's to, your just, collaborator. To, just to get a, a uh, rapport going. And you've got to be able to talk to your artist and say, look, if you see something in the script that you don't understand, mm-hmm. you want them to be able to just contact you directly. You don't want to go through some Scripts editor. are written <laughs> for artists. They're not written for readers at all. Mm-hmm. So the script only has one audience member, and that's whoever's drawing that book. So if you think about it, you've really got to, to the degree possible, talk to them first and go, what do you need? What do you want from this document? What's going to help you get through this book as, as well as you possibly can? And then you've got to try to provide that. And then, like these guys say, it's the more you can talk it through, I think the better. You know, I, I have a lot of different artists that work different ways. Guy Davis on Mystery Theater wanted nothing. He wanted as little as you could give him. Uh, tiny flecks of dialogue if it mattered and locations and then he just drew everything from his incredible imagination I work with a Danish guy named Teddy Christensen a lot he likes you know a, a world book encyclopedia amount of script and then he'll pick and choose what he needs from that even when it's super minimal stuff and mm-hmm. so I think you should first find out what they want and then the thing I like to do is is challenge them so once they go I'm really comfortable with blank I give them that and then I try to put a wrench in the works to push their work forward too so, you know, to the degree you can do that, that's also good. Interesting. Yeah, even down the chain, um, working with inkers and colorists and everything, um, you really need to be involved in the whole process. Hmm. The editor, of course, is as well, and you have to be a good collaborator with that editor. Uh, sometimes editors, they get very busy, and you're one of many projects. So in a lot of ways, you have to become the project leader, hmm. um, and it's up to you to keep that communication, keep that vision all the way through. 
Um, and if you're working with a team that, A, you understand and you can keep that uh, those discussions uh, very pointed. Uh, you know, sometimes working with overseas guys, uh, some of that becomes a little more difficult. But like he says, there's email, there's ways uh, to actually, you know, keep in communication with them. And that is essential. Who is, essential. Who is your artist? Uh, his name is Salva Espin. He did a bunch of Deadpool things. Salva Espin. Uh, this is his first kind of sure. high profile. I mean, a lot of the profile. international guys are repped by agencies, and you can find out which one they're repped by. Well, you got they oh, can yeah, put no, you, you also right, and uh, you've also got your editor who can uh, yeah. you can who you're also collaborating. Oh yeah, we have too, no so. complaints. It's been a great collaboration with everyone. Right. Just to underline, but it's, all, it's a fascinating collaboration to me too, having come from TV. Right. Yeah. yeah. But just to underline what Duncan is saying, that the editor thing is such a misnomer in comics. There are some great editors in comics. But mm-hmm. by and large, if you just think about what they're doing, like if they have five books a month, which is not uncommon, and mm-hmm. a lot of people have a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. So that means they're tracking five scripts. They're tracking five sets of pencils, five sets of inks, five sets of colors, five sets of letterings, five sets of corrections, five sets of proofs, five sets of covers, you mm-hmm. know, every month. Like, that would make your head explode. So... I think a, a lot of new writers that I talk to are like, well, my editor doesn't seem to care. They don't seem to get what I'm doing. It's like they don't have time to care or get what you're doing. And if they do care or get what you're doing, you have to go, wow, they're really going above and beyond for me. Yeah. Well, that, that is how we feel. I mean, it's, it's been a great process. Uh, and that's, that's why I was curious to hear about when you guys were at Marvel and it was, you know, this, this strange time for them where X-Men was big, but they were also going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem uh, with know, that was... was the atmosphere there. The, the editorial staff did drive us insane, to be sure, but not entirely because of their own devices. A lot of it was new financial partners would come in. So like on X-Men, Joe Kelly and I plotted out a year's worth of stories. They were approved. We started. Uh, Chris Pacello drew one of my issues. And as soon as he was done with the pencils, we get you know a call. Oh, we have new people in charge. They want this change, this change, and this changed. I'm like, we just turned in you know two books worth of a year's worth of stories. So we had to go back. We redid it all. Joe Kelly and I had met again in California, replotted everything based on the new edict. Again, like two and a half months go by, you've drawn two issues of the book, new marching orders. Now there's new people, they want this back, they want Gambit back, they want, the, you know, it's just, that's, that's what happens when you're on big books and you've got to take it, but it was just really annoying because the stuff we had planned was really good. And anytime you change direction after shit's already in print, it's not going to be that great. It's just not. Well, you take it to a degree... I mean, you, you have to think about comics, even for the big publishers, is you have to keep your own creative counsel mm-hmm. and you have to know when to push back. You have to know when to stand up for you know, something that you believe is how, what you want to express. I mean, it's still an art form. And as much as Marvel and DC especially want to sort of corporatize the process and make it more like a Hollywood studio, yeah. you have to resist that and just keep in mind this is a personal art form. And even if you're doing a goddamn stupid Wolverine story... You can still express Which, something. No critique on yours, yours, I'm sure. No, no, I'm sure it's <laughs> not Yeah, but you can still express yourself <laughs> yeah. creatively. And, and But sometimes you have to fight to get that expression through. You pick your battles, but, mm-hmm. but make sure you fight some battles. Because just rolling over and saying, hey, I'm so happy to be here that I'll just do whatever the editor says, is not the way to career well, longevity. Well, and yeah. more importantly, I mean, you can look at it as battles, but ultimately you're running your own business, too. And in your own business, you are the business. Mm-hmm. It's your it's your partners who you're working with, and so you take an active role in all of that. That's all. That's yeah, just none a, of your favorite comics are things you would describe as guys who did exactly what the company asked them to do, <laughs> or, or anything that the company asked them to do. 
Um, it, it does remind me, I mean, the process has reminded me of working in television where, mm. you know, you are trying to get your personal vision through and maybe you're on someone else's show, but, you know, there, there's that, that give and take uh, mm. has to be a part of it. Otherwise, like you said, you're, you're rolling over and you're, it's not going to be anyone's favorite product. Yeah. Uh, Including yours. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You have to care mm-hmm. to an extent. And I never, the, uh, the funny thing was one of my early editors at Marvel who just was such a pain in my ass, and I was probably a pain in his, after the fact, I mean, once I was done with that gig, I just felt like, oh, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that prick anymore. And I'm sure he felt the same way about me. And it was later on, I heard kind of through the grapevine, and then he said it too, that it was a, a deeper experience for him as an editor, because I did push back and I did want what I wanted, as opposed to somebody who's just like, whatever you want. I mean, I think editors ultimately they do want writers who have a vision even if they butt heads over it just somebody who's just going to come in and kind of be a sniveling who whatever you want to do guy a yes man for what they want they ultimately won't respect that writer anyway sure i mean they i would imagine they're in it for the same reason we are for the most part it's they love these things and they want to make them good well that's (laughs) i like like editors who want to edit i mean i've worked a lot with shelly bond at vertigo and karen berger at vertigo because they edit they don't suddenly then have a project showing up you know and it's i think it makes a huge difference if you got somebody whose dream is to steer projects with creators you know, if Shelley tells me this story doesn't work, mm-hmm. I believe it because I think she's read a ton of stories and she's looking at it as somebody who reads a lot of stories, gives notes on a lot of stories, but isn't in her mind writing the story herself for me, mm-hmm. which a lot of my other editors, right. I've been like, they kind of just want my job and they're doing it because they don't like the way right. I'm doing it or would do it differently. And that's a whole other boat. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would always take a look at an editor as almost like a teacher in some ways in, <laughs> in these particular aspects. No, a, a real editor. Not uh, not a trafficker. A real editor is somebody who uh, w- the work that they do as an editor before they even talk to you is they're uh, working with their publisher, the people that the uh, to find something that hasn't been said yet, uh, and then they find the writers who uh, they think are actually people are going to say it, and then they take their time uh, helping you find your voice. That's that's what they do. Mm-hmm. That's what a good uh, editor should do. Uh, and fight your battles for you inside of, uh, you know, any kind of publishing uh, place. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to Steve's case, I think there's a lot of people who are, you know, it's a good gig. It comes along. I'm going to hold on to it. And whatever my boss says, I'm going to make sure that it happens that way. And we got to get something out each month. I uh, just read that Marvel book, that uh, the untold story of Marvel mm-hmm. Comics. And having been through been at Marvel for probably 15 years or whatever to read about like the 1970s where Roy Thomas was the editor-in-chief and basically his edict was to a writer I'm going to give you this book if uh, don't sales don't go down right. and you're on time you can do whatever you want huh. here's Captain America go run with it and that's those are the only two responsibilities you have uh, th- you read that and then ha- having you know sort of seen Marvel become a, a much more corporatized company, a bigger company, a more professional company. I put that in air quotes for you <laughs> podcast listeners. Uh, it's kind of sad, but that's why we sort of did our time in those trenches and we moved on and now we do our books at Image Comics where yeah. we're really solely responsible for everything from the content to our collaborators to the design of the book. And it really, if you have that uh, urge within you to kind of 
take on all those parts of the process, it doesn't get any better. You complete creative control, which is kind of what you fight for your whole career. Absolutely. So to get to that place in comics where we're at is pretty sweet. Yeah, my first comic I did was <clears throat> through Renegade Press, which was the company Denny LaBear started when she and Dave Sim split up. Hmm. She got half the titles in a, a company. I, uh, you know, thank God for that for me. But I did the whole thing in my dorm room in college. You know, literally the artist was on the same campus. I lettered it myself. My now significant other, Liesl, and I did all the production on it in a dorm room. And then, you know, like 25 years later, I've worked for all the big ones. And I'm kind of, that's kind of what I'm doing now sure. on all my image books is I'm back <laughs> in my office and doing all the stuff myself and... But that's that's what you're trying. That's what you're always trying to get back to, right? Like, it's not sure. all this time to go. I it's had a, it right right at the beginning. Yeah. It's like Picasso. Right. You're on you're, getting, you're on Picasso's uh, yeah. journey there. How quickly can you get back to drawing like a child? Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about image. We've had a, a few image people here, and everybody seems to love it there. It seems like you're getting to make the books you want to make. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Joe Casey was into image long before we were, and. We had kind of slacked off on doing comics just because we were busy with a lot of other things. And he's like, you guys should be doing more comics. You should do them through Image. And I, we're always a group that's like, oh, I don't know, at the beginning. And then we warm to things. And just the more you look at it, you're like, why were we not doing books at Image? We're like the Avengers that way. Yeah. <laughs> you are. I was going to say. So it's great. I mean, Eric Stevenson basically was kind enough to say, I like you guys. And if you, you know, want to put out stuff here, this is your home. Uh, you know, they don't have a ton of resources. They have like the smallest office staff on earth and put out all these books and do all this work and it's amazing what so few people can do but as Duncan said that puts a lot of responsibility back on us so we try to not be a thorn in their side we just try to get the books totally done hand them over they look at them and go yes this is great or "Eh, you need to look at this and then they come out except for us few thorns (laughs) (laughs) well there are thorns of deadlines Uh, let's let's shift gears for a minute. So the first thing as a collective that you guys were hired to do were these uh, short films. Mm-hmm. And did you guys all have background at least in writing uh, scripts? I mean, I know you had the comic script background for the most part. Uh, was it an easy transition for you? They're not too different, but they are different. They're easier. <laughs> Screenplays are much easier than yeah. comics. Well, I think the essential, the essential difference mm-hmm. is... Uh, ultimately, you are writing dialogue to be spoken, mm-hmm. and it has to be able to uh, have an actor who can interpret it, and it sounds believable or tonally it fits inside of the story. Uh, and I think that's essentially the biggest leap, because the other one, you are writing it to be read, mm-hmm. uh, and it becomes a part of the graphics. It becomes a part of the actual vis- visual experience. But I think that that's, if if I was to say any huge difference it's between those two and if you spend any time listening to your words out loud being said by somebody else you can you can uh, i think you can gather that pretty quickly yeah it's a it, we do a lot of animation now and that's kind of the note i give writers over and over and over which is this looks really great on the page and it looks great in your brain but try saying it out loud and it's not good you know you've got to really think that way i i, I think i had sold a movie before we did those i can't even remember the timing um, of these things yeah, you had at one point in that one month you had the TV show. I sold a the movie. feature, a pilot, and an animated show all right. in a week. I had a really good week. <laughs> yeah, it was a great week. I had such week. a good week that I quit working for and, two years after that. And you were hired on the X Men. <laughs> and the X Men. And had a near heart attack. I had a near heart attack and almost. <laughs> oh my God. It's too much stuff. Uh, Lightweight. We had, we had all dabbled, I think, at the very least. Uh, so we knew a little bit about it, but we didn't know enough about it to be hired to do it. 
but we again collectively mm-hmm. we call ourselves a man of action because it's four guys but we equal one man yeah. so between the four of us we had enough knowledge to write a screenplay I had four. I had before the comic book thing I was doing the screen uh, and I worked on a lot of independent films I used to work at a place called IRS Media so I worked uh, which was part of IRS Records uh, but they made their, uh, some of the stellar uh, movies was uh, Shakes the Clown Bobcat Goldthwait's sure. first movie <laughs> sure. which I did the storyboards on so <laughs> Uh, and then a thing called One False Move uh, with uh, one of Billy Bob Thornton's first movies, maybe a second or third. Um, so, I, I mean, I had spent a great deal of time uh, in film before that sure. and also in performance, my background in that. So, so I think that that offered me, at least from the screenplay side of stuff. But you know what? A transition from that into comic books there. Uh, well, some of the d- story demands are different. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them are shorter. Uh, you have to get to the point quicker in some t- cases, or in some of the uh, more independent books, you get to uh, you get to languish, you get to uh, enjoy <laughs> languish, uh, enjoy it a little longer. People love those books. Yeah, yeah. Man, some people awesome. do. It's languishing a lot. <laughs> some people do. There are a lot of languishing language. Uh, you know, so, they're I, mean, I think the the more I've written, the more I understand how alike things are. Mm-hmm. I think back in the day, I was freaked out by how different they were and really concerned as to whether I'd get all the little minutiae nuts and bolts right. And now I'm just like, I, I work with a lot of new writers, and I'm just like, beginning, middle, and end, theme, yeah. you know, voice, point of view. And it, it, it doesn't matter what the form is. If you don't get those things, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And to Joe's point uh, earlier... Uh, we had come in on a nice wave when uh, some of the uh, ideas or the concepts that they were disciplines that were so markedly different mm-hmm. that it required two very different types of writers to do them uh, were dropping. Uh, some of that is very perceptual. You know, uh, it, it was just the way things were done mm-hmm. as opposed to the way they could be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of that just dropped away and has been dropping away uh, as you get some of these uh, great successes you know uh, crossing over both ways yeah. i do find that an awful lot of writers who are in film and tv are <laughs> to uh, much astonishment to people who are working in comic books uh, <laughs> migrating yeah, yeah, migrating yeah. into it when it Unknown seemed to be reasons. a stream that was only one moving one way and i do think the principal reason for that is the level of autonomy that you uh can get uh doing uh some of the comic book stuff that you don't when you're necessarily working in tv mm-hmm. uh film even it uh, has its... It is perplexing. You know those entrances to parking lots with the spikes? They say, don't back up. <laughs> That's kind of what it is. You know. uh, I mean, there's also that question of collaboration. I mean, again, film and TV, you have hundreds of people that you have to deal with and certainly way more hoops to jump through. And, you know, even working mm-hmm. for one of the major companies uh, mm-hmm. on a comic book, it's there are w- many fewer. Yes, yes. I agree. Fewer, but they're get, getting to be more and more. It's the part that irks me about mm-hmm. mainstream comics or the big superhero publishers is that it's more like, like you said, it's more like a TV show. It's more like yeah. somebody else's. They're picking up the wrong they're, parts right, of a they're, television they're adopt, yeah. yeah, they're adopting. The development of yeah. things feels yeah. like yeah. TV feels yeah. in, a, in a bad way. <laughs> right. It can be, yeah, it's going to be overworked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the right word, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, tell, let's talk a little bit about Ben 10. Uh, so you had the opportunity to go pitch a superhero thing. That, those were the guidelines. 
Yeah. Um, where did this show come from? Did you, you know, f- put four heads together and talk it out? Here or we go. Did someone walk in with it? <laughs> Steve? Uh, does someone want to take credit? <laughs> no, it's not credit. Joe hates that I tell the story, but I love this story. It's a best story. <laughs> no, I so love what, it. What's your problem with it? I love it. I love okay, this You better story. love it. No, um, so Duncan had a little mini office behind his house, and we all met there, and everybody kind of brought their ideas to the table. And it was the first time we had worked super collectively uh, at the same time in the same place, like even Joe Kelly flew out from New York. And we literally just spent somewhere between like three days and a week kind of hearing everybody's ideas, adding stuff to them. It was like snowballs rolling down hills and getting bigger. Uh, and when it was done, we, had a, we just had a shitload of them. And we were like, well, what do we go pitch? And we came up with this idea to pitch them 20 shows in 20 minutes. Because we didn't really want to cut anything. Everything had like a cool germ to it. You know, and, and we had done a lot of work on all of them. And as a quick preface, uh, we had done a pre-prep call with uh, Sam Register, who was the head of development at the time at Cartoon Network. And he was very specific, yeah. which is kind of odd because you have a lot of people who go, uh, well, you know, whatever. Whatever floats your boat, bring it in. Uh, but he was very specific. I'm looking for this, this, and this, and this. So we had some parameters to work inside of. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways. Yeah. I mean, we had, the word through the grapevine was that he wanted something like the Fantastic Four. So the first thing we did was say, we're not going to give him that. But we know what the DNA of the Fantastic Four is. We know why that would appeal to somebody. And we just started rebuilding with the DNA. So we literally pitched 20 shows, 20 minutes. Uh, we didn't pitch them all, actually, because we, we had a stopwatch, and just at 60 seconds, that pitch was over onto the next one. Oh, he, uh, he, he could, and Sam Register, to his credit, would go, you'd start the sentence to, no, no, thank you. Yeah. And he's like, fine, let's and move to the next one. He's a smart exec yeah. who gets it mm-hmm. and just wants to have fun in what he's doing. Yeah, and about midway through the list, it was Biddington, and he was like, that's it. it. Episode, that's want. episode 10. <laughs> It, it was. It was the eighth. But I love pitch. that. One. I like the uh, for the story. Yes, it should be. That's but he knew exactly what he wanted. Right. He was like, "That's exactly what we want. Uh, that's it." And, we, and what what was in that you know sixty second pitch that? Well, got if, the if you believe across. the LA Times, nothing. But contrary to that folklore that's uh, emerging lately, for reasons I don't can't even begin to understand. Uh, ben was in it. Gwen was in it. Grandpa Max was in it. The this idea of transformation at the the first pitch was. He turned into uh, versions of himself from different dimensions, and each dimension had different superpowers. So there'd be like a dimension of heat, and he'd come right. back with the heat powers. It was of heat blast. Yeah, alternate universes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one Ben grew up on a on an Earth where the polar ice cap had melted, mm-hmm. so therefore he was the Amphiba Ben. Uh, so <laughs> they. Uh, that was the essential, but uh, Everybody the device that. that he changes and he moves, uh, you know, he's uh, uh, becoming these different uh, versions of himself, uh, but the device of transformation, uh, the family unit that uh, works very well, all of that was in the original. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but then they did a test group with kids and kids thought dimensions were too difficult to understand and so it became other worlds and you know it was a two-year development mm-hmm. and we were in on all those meetings and a lot of mm-hmm. stuff changed but it was it was cool like one day joe casey's you know they're like well who are the villains joe casey's like ah oh, fuck you know how it is you go to school and there's some kid who's like a year older than you and he's got more power than you and you know, it's, it's like kevin 11 or something so you know <laughs> and, and now years later that's here's absolutely kevin 11. not how it happened exactly. but i'll let that, that story is, not stand. only is that how it and happened, it was but the 10th pitch that is not at all <laughs> how that happened how did it happen <laughs> i said he's his nemesis should be kevin 11 who has the original idea for kevin 11 was <laughs> it was kevin 11 he could change it right. to 11 Man. 
alien, right. bad supervillain guys. Right. We had had that story with the six million dollar man, and we were saying the coolest villain in the six million dollar man was, <laughs> was the, the seven, seven million dollar man. <laughs> he was just a lot better. So then, as it went through the Cartoon Network, you know, development process, he became a guy whose name was Kevin Levin, and. <laughs> He, I don't even, still to this day, don't quite understand what his powers. He's the absorbing man. Yeah, oh, he's the absorbing man. That's right. The yeah. absorbing man. So, I still say my idea was better, but whatever. The thing makes three billion dollars. So what do I know? <laughs> and we had the joke of his watch saying, "This one goes to 11. Oh God. <laughs> um, but you know, so that was it. We we wrote a lot of the scripts in the first series, uh, and then we consult ever since after right. that at their disposal well tell me a little bit uh, a bit about <clears throat> those early years uh in you know you're you're creating a mythology right and mm-hmm. it's not unlike a comic book in many ways uh but actually it's very similar and uh i mean that's one of the things that i think we have the a strength at is mm-hmm. from our background inside of comic books and also just our general take on stuff it's mm-hmm. you're building a mythology you are you're building the the world that the characters exist in and Something that's great from a comic book perspective is you you know you have to have this deep firmament to pull everything out of sure. for it to have any longevity. And that's something I think as a company we take a great deal of pride in being able to do uh, really quite well. If I may yeah, say comics so. serves us well in universe <laughs> building. For well, sure. that and what worked so well at Cartoon Network is luckily Sam Register was a big comic book fan. Mm-hmm. He knows that that stuff, and we could talk just as fans. And then from those conversations, yeah. we could talk about Ben Ten and know where There's things were coming game. from. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which that's that's a recent development in Hollywood in the past ten, fifteen yeah. years, where you, you meet executives and they know comics and they're fans of comics, and you can yeah. You used to meet one or two, and now you don't meet any that don't know yeah. comics. Yeah. Well, cool. at least they have to uh, if, if they hadn't in their. Uh, in their own uh, education, they had to educate themselves to uh, to this stuff to become an executive. Yeah, it's a days. part of the language. Yeah. No, uh, that's interesting. Um, but tell me about um, actually writing these early scripts. How did you guys approach it as a collective? We didn't write all the scripts. We actually were not hired as the story editors, which was yeah. a surprise to us. Uh, <laughs> there was there was as there always are political things in the mix, and mm-hmm. we had to collectively decide: Are we going to? put our you know knife in the mud for being the executive producer of this show that's the wrong that's an expression right? I'm, gonna go make, I'm coining that right now uh, or <laughs> that just sounds like prison here's just sounds like prison language here's cotton in your eye uh, <laughs> knife on my mud or blood it's gonna be in the next great unknown I know it um <laughs> Or do we, you know, dig in for back-end percentage hmm. participation? And for some reason, we chose the latter, even though it left us with way less power in that first uh, iteration. And what a brilliant idea that was for us, because it kind of has funded everything else we've ever wanted to do as Man of Action and continues <laughs> to do so, because the franchise just continues right. to make lots and lots of yeah. crazy well, you were money. It's, it's eight years in. Yeah, they, they're, Cartoon Network's announcing it's made $3 billion so far. So. Yeah. so developing the Bible, I mean, that mm-hmm. was, uh, from a collaboration point of view, we all, uh, like Steve said, we got, we got together and we started putting together, the, and we gave them, and we can produce... We three or four different drafts with deep, three or four different sets of aliens and right. characters. And, and we just talk, um, we'd talk those out, and then we'd, it's almost like homework. You go off and write this section, right. and you go off and write that section, and you write, you know, you... Fill out the backstories of those characters, and you take those characters right. and then go through and do style and, pass to put right. them all back together. And I think um, 
one of the benefits of the character and that show specifically inside of the animation world and and also uh the bravery of cartoon network at that moment uh was that they were looking for something original, but they were also looking for something that was going to have a uh, vernacular that was familiar enough to an older audience, and also everything that was freaking cool about comic books to a younger audience that, you know, oddly enough, a lot of the uh, straight-from-comic-book-to-animation stuff wasn't catching. They were, you know, you had a very different sensibility of people who were, they were coming in either as fans or, well, whatever it was, they, they were having to deal with 50, 60 years of, of uh, a backstory that uh, was getting in the way of just telling new stories, mm-hmm. uh, but with the same heart, tone, and feel of the of this stuff that, uh, uh, that we had all fallen in love with. And so with something new like this, uh, we could tell all brand new stories but it still felt uh familiar and they let ben have flaws i mean the yeah. key to all this is you've got to have characters who are not perfect and kids get that but there's this real knee-jerk reaction that heroes have to be infallible which is ridiculous so you know ben's got this most powerful device in the universe but doesn't really know how to use it well so sometimes his cousin gwen minus ultimate power is smart enough to do what he can't do with infinite power mm-hmm. you know and that's a that's a great dynamic for kids and Ben still can turn into cool heroes and save the day when he needs to. And it was that uh, the ability to, the willingness to let him have a flaw that I think made it last. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, character, <laughs> yeah. uh, in other terms. Uh, and that is something that the great comic books, at least the ones I fell in love with, all the great heroes had flaws. Mm-hmm. All of them, you know, from the superheroes, uh, uh, you know, that principally, you know, you think of it when you think of Marvel stuff uh, mm-hmm. uh, that he had. He yeah. had that in his core identity, and they, they don't seem to do that, or they didn't seem to do that for a while in the animated uh, field before that. So, Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I, I think that this is probably the reason that kids and anyone has responded so strongly to the show. Um, yeah. No, I was also going to say uh, also having, and this was something that I think we pushed for, uh, and Sam was really quite receptive towards is having multi generational uh, characters in there. You don't have grandpas running around yeah. in a lot of cartoons. Uh, grandpas and I like the way you said it. You kind of put a little oldness in there. Grandpas, get off of my lawn. That's right. It never <laughs> stops. It never stops. Uh, but uh, this was something, uh, some of us, we, uh, we have kids, and. We, we watch cartoons, sometimes things that we don't necessarily want to watch. Want to stab uh, your eyes out. Uh, so it was very important to make sh- sure that uh, something that we were part of was going to have something that, as an adult, you could also bring some uh, something to it uh, that, that would... That we have just as many dads and moms who are thankful for the show sure. the way it is. Uh, not just and be- they love that we put out so many toys. Yeah, they love that. <laughs> they continue they to love, love it. that. Uh, you can talk about character and all this kind of crap. I really think it comes down to that first theme song. That was really- the first theme song. Is great. You know what? You know what? It it's huge. The new one is great. Theme songs are, are extremely important. Totally. Totally. That's, that's Andy Andy Strummer. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still working with Sam yes. on a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah. We with him well, he did uh, the Teen Titans as well. Yeah. So I mean, the guy's got chops. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, tell me just a little bit about some of the other animated stuff you guys have worked on uh, since uh, Ben 10. Uh, there was this uh, a Spider-Man show. Is that right? Am I yeah, well, first it was Generator X. So it was oh, another course. original yeah. property based on the comic book that Duncan and Joe Kelly did mm-hmm. called M-Rex. Uh, minus some of that Joe Kelly dark, creepy <laughs> stuff. You know, it turned into a, a cool 60 episodes. <laughs> 
What about Duncan's dark, creepy well, stuff? Duncan, <laughs> Duncan's dark, creepy isn't the same as Joe Kelly's. Uh, it's Duncan's true. dark, creepy is kind of cute and cuddly. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to ask this about Ben 10 also. Did you do the character design on it? Uh, the... I did the initial stuff, but the mm. stuff that you saw was really, for the most part, Dave Johnson, okay. uh, who's just a fantastic yeah. designer. Uh, he brought so much to it and so much thought to it. Uh, you know, we can talk about theme songs, but we also, if you got Dave Johnson in your corner, you're also got sure. a pretty good. <laughs> but and is that the way when you guys are pitching or working on an animated thing? Uh, you know, as the house artist, mm. uh, it all falls you tend on to him. Do uh, that early yeah, work? Uh, well. You know, the interesting thing is if you spend so much time explaining yourself visually, uh, it becomes easier to do that in some in some cases. So uh, uh, it's been a curve for me uh, to try to uh, verbalize some of those things when it's so much easier to do it. So I, it, when it says it falls on me, uh, <laughs> there's a part of me that... Uh, feels the necessity to do that. Sure. He wanted to sketch own. this whole podcast, but we <laughs> said it wasn't going to work. The drawing was way more interesting than <laughs> what you're listening to. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Generator Rex. So Generator Rex, that was 60 episodes, original for Cartoon Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Marvel. And a, and a good experience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We were much more hands-on. Way mm-hmm. more hands-on with that. We were in, in that every day. Yeah, uh, in the trenches. Yeah. At that point, we figured, okay, animation, we have kind of a flag in that mountain, so sure. we might as well dive in and experience it and figure out how to do it really how to do it on every level that we had access to that's great so that started with generator rex and we moved on to marvel we got even fucking deeper into it <laughs> uh yeah uh, build up the production chops and also uh you know actually earn the title of executive producer on things and mm-hmm. from a business point of view that's an essential part of a company yeah, we, we actually we did a we consulted on a show called bakugan for a number of years mm-hmm. not in, we didn't actually write anything but we did a lot of script doctoring for mm-hmm. them for a spin master toy show uh basically and then while all that was going on as rex was ramping down jeff Loeb was appointed the head of marvel television and asked us to write uh five episodes of uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, mm-hmm. which we did. We had to do them very quickly. They needed, like, uh, I don't know what the deadline issue was. We had to write five episodes in two weeks, and that's where having four guys helps <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot. So we pulled that off, and they're like, do you guys want to... Especially wanna... bi-coastal, because you can have a 24-hour writing <laughs> <Pretty much>. cycle. <laughs> I think we did Absolutely. for those two weeks. That was <laughs> grueling. And then uh, pulling that off, they were like, do you guys want to spearhead the uh, Ultimate Spider-Man show when it hmm. comes up? Uh, on on the Avengers show, what... what... Was it already up and running? Oh yeah, yeah. No, we were oh, way late. This was game. these were the last the, uh, actual batch episodes of episodes that we for the whole are, show. Yeah, are airing now. They yeah. already oh, no aired. Kidding. They finally aired. Um, I know people have been asking me a lot to have some Avengers people on the podcast. So, well, here we is are. Is there anything yeah. you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have not seen the show. I hear it's great. Uh, well, is there anything you want to say about it? Well, the, the bigger <laughs> announcement is that Earth's Mightiest Heroes is drawing to a close, and uh, Man of Action is the co-executive producer on the new Marvel Avengers yes. Assembled show, which will be on next year, uh, which was just announced at New York Comic Con. Yeah. Uh, and they showed a, a reel for that, which is an amazing test reel. It looks you know, really it's, cool. It's not going to disappoint anybody who loves Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Mm. Uh, it's not going to disappoint anybody who loves the, the movie, because the, it's those two DNAs that we're kind of drawn off of right. to make something new and cool. And how are those different from the comic book the the uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes and the New Avengers well Spider-Man's the easier one to talk about because people are like oh it's called Ultimate Spider-Man so is it just like Bendis's comic mm-hmm. and the answer is it's nothing like Bendis's comic no. uh, except that it's the Peter Parker you know it's the Spider-Man you know the right. stories are all we sit in the room and we're like would this happen to, to Peter would this be something Spider-Man mm-hmm. would do but it 
it had the freedom of Joe Quesada saying, make a show for kids that kids will love first. And then make sure you respect everything else that we know and love about Spider and Peter Parker. So even Bendis is in the room. He's one of our, our people in the creative suite as we make those episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just not like that. It's its own thing. It's mm-hmm. for kids, 6 to 10. But adults now, at our last two cons, are like, wow, we really actually like that show. It's a really fun show. Because we tried to do what Duncan said, which is you know make, make something that kids love. If you're an adult, you go, oh, it's a tip of the hat to this. Or, oh, they're pulling in that character from the comics. Mm-hmm. So we're still doing that, but it's it's got to serve the audience first, which is six to ten year old kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the thing about the ultimate aspect of it, at least the part that we took, and also working with Brian and Joe uh, on the show, Joe Casada, was that the concept of the ultimate, at least inside of the book, was that okay, a lot of this stuff's familiar, but it's not in a way that you've seen it before. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was the spirit that we entered in on that show. Well, I know it's the spirit that we entered in on that show. So um, it was very liberating uh, from different uh, iterations of Spider-Man before that. It was how well could you adapt the comic, uh, the the old comic book, into an animated into an show. animated show. And, you know, the spectacular Spider-Man did a great job of that. This one is not doing that. This one is... Uh, saying, how can you take the soul of these characters and find a way and a place for them inside of animation? Mm-hmm. That uh, what if it was invented right, right now, now as a cartoon? Mm-hmm. Well, because the the challenge of Marvel's animation is this: is that comics. You know, we all got into comics when we were you know five, six, seven, eight years old. You go to the Seven Eleven. There's issue of Spider Man. You pick it up. You read it. You fall in love with the medium. And the Rocket Racer. There you go. And it's <laughs> difficult for kids to even find comics. Yeah. So where are they going to be exposed to these characters? The movies no, tend to skew a little older. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't cast Robert Downey Jr. if you're trying to get a six-year-old. You know, that's just fact of life. So the animation is now serving as that gateway into sure. the Marvel Universe, into these characters. And I think the hope is that a six-year-old kid who can't go to the Seven Eleven and get a comic off the spinner rack but does have Disney XD on his cable will watch these shows and get into these characters, and that will lead them to the comics, mm-hmm. the movies, the video games, the toys, all this kind of... But it's important to hook these kids in early. Mm-hmm. So that's where the animation becomes important to, to Marvel and to the, their whole corporate sense. culture. And that's why they're geared to that age group as opposed to something like Earth's Mightiest Heroes, which was a broader, like, let's get the comic book readers in, mm-hmm. the people who read Avengers when they were a kid and kind of know these stories and know the more minute, minute details yeah. of the characters. What we're doing, even with the new show, is going for that same audience that we go for in Ultimate Spider-Man. It's mm-hmm. a different kind of show, right. but the goal is the same, to get those kids hooked on these Marvel characters mm-hmm. that can sustain them forever. Well, and yeah. also establish a sense of ownership for this generation. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, uh, you know, I saw the Spider-Man show and the Rhino, and it's, and then the dad goes, that's not what the Rhino does, and, you know, and, and then points to Are some more acting. A lot of character yeah. voices. More acting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Can you do an acting? That's not Ash. what the Rhino does. Dad. You, that's right. That's that's not well, what the Rhino does. Well, and then all of a sudden, it's, that's my Rhino that's character. That's not what the <laughs> Rhino does. <laughs> That's, that's a cold-hearted whore. <laughs> I was giving you a little Joe Kelly there. That was actually. That was pretty good. Um, 
and, and so, so that is the approach to the new Avengers is to have this accessibility. Well, we can't say much about the approach because yeah. it's still half a year away and sure. we're under, you know, lockdown. <laughs> I said everything orders. that we could say about it. Pretty All much. Right. But, but Kids will love it. In the way That's that great. Ultimate Spider-Man is watchable by adults, watchable by fans, but kind of its own whole new thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of what we're doing. It's interesting that this seems to be the approach. I mean, we have 50, 60, 70 years of history with these characters, but as they're being translated, especially to TV, people are kind of taking what they like from it and or what they need from it. Well, I mean, I, I do think that. that that's the big difference between being a creative force and, or being almost kind of like this scholarly approach to sure. things. Uh, and I think as a company, what we would much more prefer and what we try to do is take a creative approach to these fantastic uh, characters and this stuff, but not, you know, the scholarly stuff has its place, but it it, it can't be the overriding, mm-hmm. it cannot be the overriding motivation. You can't be slavish. No. no. Okay. And then we're, we have two new shows of our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is an international property called Gourmeti which was a really successful toy line, and it's had two animated shows, but it's never really caught fire in America. Hmm. And so the creator of Gourmeti just contacted Man of Action and was like, what would you do with this if you just started over? Uh, and really let us just run with it. So we're having fun on that, uh, starting a second what, season. What is the concept of it? Uh, it's, it's elemental earth lords, basically, on an alien planet. Uh, so it's a lot of environmental themes, but it's, it's just really fun. Uh, a lot of smashing and bashing. It's got a little, <laughs> cool. little fantasy sword and sorcery kind of feel to it. Right. If there's a, you know, the the fantastic thing about working with Europeans is very different. At least the the approach of the storytelling that they'd like to uh, uh, emphasize. And so the idea of doing something that's a little more quote unquote serialized, mm-hmm. uh, they're far more open to because uh, they just story wise that that's something that they uh, they. Uh, are attracted towards immediately here there's a market uh, that's involved in the decision making and they want to keep things the story can very contained in one episode because they don't know when it's going to air and so uh one of the big appeals of something like gourmeti and will uh, and this other show that we're working with uh the french company on uh something that we created for them um called the seven seas but we can have a more serialized approach so it has well, it's epic storytelling. You That's know, fun. you uh, it draws on the aspect of this myth building or the uh, the world building aspects that we are uh, very fond of. But then you can find ways of telling these stories in a in a, in a dark dark you know a, a large a large uh, bigger tapestry. Tapestry. Yeah. They're still standalones. Like we we get that. Uh, you want well, to watch an episode and feel like you've understood something start to finish, right. but we're able to weave them a little more. Long form. Don't forget about my adult foul mouth cartoon that I'm. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell about that? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm doing. Uh, I'm working with uh, Scott Mosier and Jim Mafood, great comic book artist, sure. and we're doing something for Liquid TV and then MTV mm-hmm. called Disco Destroyer, which is not for kids. Not <laughs> at all. What is it? Uh, it's about. Can't you a, tell from the title? <laughs> yeah, it's about a sort of a '70s era car culture freedom rocker guy who is caught up in a race. Uh, the devil is racing. The, a, a godlike figure is racing, awesome. and if either one wins, the world changes, and he wants the world just the way it is to you know have That's the great. freedom to rock, man, <laughs> to chug his beer on his own time. So it's very. Um, stylized and, and again very adult so that's it's really, very, it's a fun concept very too. Joe Casey yeah it's <laughs> nice to have that's the place we've gotten in our what I laughingly call our career is that we do have this freedom to do all these things mm-hmm. 
And we're just at that point now. I mean, I think that we could have gotten branded as kind of the Ben 10 guys mm-hmm. or this sort of boys action niche, which is not a bad niche to be in. But uh, I think we're all very conscious of making sure that we expand our company and, and do different things in different areas. That's it's kind of worked out so far. Yeah, that's terrific. Is there stuff uh, that either you're working on that, you know, is, is the dream for the company, things that you guys talk about among yourselves that you're just looking for an outlet for? Oh, absolutely, constantly. Um, I mean, we have two different ways that, uh, that we can now credibly get them out and in, out into the mm-hmm. public uh in a real in a real concrete way one is still through our comic books and our deals with image so um right now you know we're publishing a lot of our own stories uh and then we're translating those into other types of mediums uh film uh primarily right now is where we've right. been having some success success with that but uh, film and tv um not to mention some multimedia stuff and then uh the other thing is now that we have a little bit of uh we have a little bit of credibility inside of the animation field. We're meeting with, uh, we're meeting with, well, all kinds of companies from every type you could imagine, toy companies to uh, to these multimedia companies uh, who want to work with us on developing just different types of storytelling. And so that's what we do all day long as we come up with uh, these concepts. We sit there on our phone culture still. Hey, what about this? Hey, that'd be great. Oh, that's cool. But now we have a way to maybe. Uh, Turn it into something. Turn it into something. Yeah, like the Seven Seas, the project Duncan was talking about, was something we kind of worked on with a Korean uh, production house called Sam G. It was actually, officially, one of the pitches in that 20 minutes. uh, It was. Ah, (laughs) I forgot about that. Uh, You could mine those for another Well, there's there's eight that nobody's ever heard, but I keep mentioning (laughs) this in interviews and nobody ever asked about it. Each one is more gold than the next. Uh, Whatever. Register was just... Can you do the pitches right now? No, we would never do that in a million years. I could uh, do it in 20 different voices. They have partnered with uh, a couple of French companies, Method and Zagtoons, and that's going into production now. And it's, you know, another wholly Man of Action created Mm -hmm. original project. That's the animation thing. Because of Ben 10's success, it's for us, it's become this global business where Mm -hmm. our... How we can make shows now can be these foreign co-pros mm-hmm. basically and um it's kind of interesting because it they as duncan was saying they have different parameters for storytelling than sort of north american markets so we get to do different things it's not just oh another animation show each right. one has been somewhat unique and specific and the no. parameters have been different so we just had the, the most exciting phrase i've ever heard because uh that the show that i sold like 20 years ago was a girl's action show and never got made because everybody we took it to was like, girls don't watch action, which is bullshit. Uh, and we just had a meeting with some producers uh, from uh, Italy who were like, we want a girls action show. And we're like, <laughs> score, finally. So Exactly. Yeah, these things never go away. No. Well, not only do they not go away, but uh, opportunity of... Uh, has been opened up because it's not just particularly any one particular market any longer. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, we're finding that sometimes these things might very well have life that uh, does not necessarily uh, spring forth from North America. It's coming from uh, yeah. some other uh, other sources, and that's actually very cool. That's, that's a, awesome. That's great. Congratulations to you guys. It's, thank you. It's thank really you. exciting. Uh, let's very briefly, the, the last thing we ask on this podcast, and we'll start with Joe and come down this way, what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you? What's getting you excited or inspired? Or what do you like talking about uh, for oh comics, TV, God. movies, whatever you like? Oh my God! <laughs> uh, 
All right, I'll, I'll be very obscure. I just saw two movies. Well, I, I saw one, and I'm about to watch another. I just got the DVD of this movie from, I think it was 1990, called The Intruder, which is a slasher film that this guy Scott Spiegel made. And um, the sort of connection to pop culture is that it was the first movie that uh, Lawrence Bender produced. He went on to produce all of Quentin Tarantino's sure. movies. This was his first movie. It's like a $100,000 slasher film. takes place in a grocery store. And it, it, guys' heads get saw, sawed in half and you know, get crushed in these garbage crushers. It's so bizarre, but <laughs> the fact that they made it for $100,000 and it's got like Renee Estevez in it and Bruce Campbell's in it. Of course. So, um, and then the other thing, they just put out Stanley Kubrick's first film called Fear and Desire on uh-huh. DVD. So I just got that in the mail. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing Fun. that. Fun. Um, I just finished a book called Anonymous, which is about the the online hacker group Anonymous mm-hmm. or the forming of it, yeah. and uh, it was so incredibly interesting. I've now uh, got myself deep into uh, taking a look at hacker culture, just as a, uh, <laughs> and now I have them following me, which makes me a little nervous. Yeah, that's good. But uh, uh, that has been a, an extremely interesting book and has opened a, a whole kind of. Uh, cultural while uh, 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 something that I, you know you only hear terms of and how it works unless you really have some technical back, background and technical know-how and um, this offered me a way into some of that stuff uh, without actually having to be a computer engineer so I don't even know if I'll remember the name of this movie uh, the last thing I just saw was is it For All Mankind? Yeah For All uh, Mankind which is a documentary about the, the Apollo program and I'm not a huge space guy at all. My brother was. But uh, they took the archives, the NASA archives. Apparently, like, you've just seen the same 10 minutes of footage over and over for 40 years. Some guy went back in and watched everything and then assembled a, a documentary that's covering liftoff to moon landing, back to the capsule, and back to Earth using footage you've never seen. Some of it is mind-boggling. That's wild. Uh, and only the words of Apollo astronauts narrating wow. it. So that's really incredible. And then I just went up to Berkeley and saw... A four and a half hour Philip Glass Robert Wilson opera called Einstein on the Beach that's only been staged three times in the U.S. and it's uh, it's got no plot no characters no storyline uh, they just count one through eight and say a bunch <laughs> of stuff this autistic kid apparently uh, recited uh, and it was totally captivating wow I'll jump in I want to say that that untold history of Marvel comics is a fantastic book is it Finally, the history of Marvel is much more interesting than their comic books are right now. <laughs> so I would recommend to anybody who knows anything about Marvel, anything about the comics industry, and even if you don't, it's, it's unbelievably gripping as a story. Oh, cool. Uh, it's, like a, it's not too inside baseball. It has a little bit of it, but it's, I, I love that book. I'm give a comic shout-out to uh, Glenn Dillon's book, Now of Brown. I don't know that. Uh, it just came out. It's a hardcover. He was a cool kind of vertigo artist like 10, 12 years ago, and I haven't seen anything from him. Now he's just got this giant book about halfway through. It's really cool. Uh, I like it so far. I hope it ends as well as it What's begins. What's the concept? Um, it's, it's about a woman who has... Uh, uh, what's the... Um, compulsive disorder but she has a very interesting one which i don't want to say what it is yeah but she has an odd way that it acts out for her and so it it really what's so smart about it is it makes use of comics there's a lot of stuff that people oh this is my movie but it's in a comic book form this the visual metaphor really is perfect in comics and you could probably do it somewhere else but I, i love that he really thought about visual storytelling on the page and that his character needs that 
to be in this book. So I thought that was great. That's cool. And I just started rereading Milkman Murders. Oh, I got your geez. little hardcover. And that thing is fucked up. You are a mess. <laughs> That's true. I can't deny that. Yeah, and I just saw uh, La Cunada High School's uh, <laughs> version of Don't Drink the Water. Featuring Woody your Allen. son. <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, Man of Action, thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks. <laughs> thank you, audience. Yes. <laughs> You've been wonderful. Give yourself a round of applause. <laughs> we'll put it in. We'll put it in in post. Now leaving Nerdist.com.